we can celebrate the highs, but sometimes you're on a low and people don't necessarily know. So just treat people with grace because you just don't know what other people are going through. Episode 200 of Hurdle. <laughs> I'm so amped. Emily Abadi here coming to you live from the AG studio. You are listening to Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. 200 episodes. Okay. I feel the need to disclaim that there are actually at this very point in time, 467 episodes in the hurdle podcast feed, but you know, the drill, if you are a hurdler, Mondays are the numbered episodes. And so today marks episode 200. It also marks me sitting here recording this intro with a voice that may be a little more than usual after just the most unbelievable few days of events. A huge thank you first to the wonderful woman that came out for a dinner that I co-hosted with my friends at Whoop last Thursday night. It truly was just the most special opportunity to get together in community. And I feel just as grateful for the opportunity to come together IRL for the hurdler huddle that I hosted on Saturday with 30 outstanding hurdlers from the New York City community. I look forward to recreating this experience. Goodness, all over the United States, you make me amped and excited and motivated to make it happen. So my rough voice, <laughs> it says, thank you. I digress. Episode 200. This is awesome. Kara Goucher. What a big way for me to come into this new, let's call it some new territory. I loved catching up with Kara. We kick things off today by talking about Kara's recent diagnosis of runner's dystonia, what that means, and how it's affecting her emotionally and mentally. We also bring it back to talk about how she fell in love with the sport in the first place with the help of her late grandfather. Some really beautiful stories there and what it was like losing him to COVID during the pandemic. Plus, her journey to self-acceptance and navigating disordered eating as a college athlete and the hard work that went into her her Olympic experiences first as an athlete and then most recently as a commentator for NBC. We cap things off by talking about the recent campaign for Ultra that we are both a part of, highlighting that if you have a body, regardless of what it looks like, you are an athlete. I am so so grateful for Kara's openness throughout this. This was truly such a joy, and I am so amped to photobomb her Boston Marathon coverage. Okay, I'm kind of kidding, but <laughs> not so much. I can't wait to see you out there, Kara. 
If you haven't done so yet, make sure you're subscribed to the weekly hurdle newsletter. The link to do that is in the show notes. I would love to be in your inbox every single Friday morning. The link to join the secret, not so secret, hurdlers Facebook group is also in the show notes. We'd love for you to come hang with that community. Plus, make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social at Hurdle Podcast. And I am over at Emily Abadi. With that, episode 200. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Kara Goucher. She's a two-time U.S. Olympian, a world championships silver medalist, and arguably one of the most decorated female American distance runners in history. How are you? I'm doing great. As I was telling you right before we recorded, I'm hanging out in my son's room today. So <laughs> everything's good. I know. I feel like I just like casually asked you how you're doing, but I feel like we need to like collectively have a moment here where I really ask you how you're doing because a lot has happened over the last two years, not just because of gestures loosely, the pandemic, the panini, but because <laughs> of like what's been going on in your world. So Kara Goucher, how are you today? You know, I am doing well. I'm a lot like the last two years for me have been very stressful and like for so many people, but just a lot of stuff in my personal life happening, issues with my health. And I'm, I feel like a lot of the things that were stressing me out are now done. I have a plan to navigate my health and the trip to Hawaii that my husband and son and I were supposed to take two years ago is happening this coming Sunday. So I feel like where things are coming together, I'm leaving some things behind in my past. And I feel excited about this week to regroup together in a week, coming up in a week. <laughs> I love this moment of gratitude for you. Okay. Two things to double click on here. The first thing to double click on is you said it, talking a little bit about what you've been going on with your health. Why don't you shed some light on that for the people who may be listening to this, who are not in the loop just yet? Essentially, I passed out on a treadmill in December of 2020. And from then on, when I ran outside, I started to have this really crazy slipping sensation. And, you know, I could fall a lot. I would always run across the street to the left side of the road and I couldn't stop my body from doing that, which led me to find like falling. I fell into traffic, which finally led me to admit something was wrong, which finally led me to see a doctor. But then it was just like, like searching for a needle in a haystack, right? Like I'd go to this neurologist and I'm like, my left foot slips and I feel like someone's pushing me to the left. And it was just like, so hard to explain. And so then of course, you know, you, you MRI the spine, you MRI the brain, they found I had brain lesions. So that took us down one path. We were worried that it was MS. Eventually we realized it wasn't, I started to feel a little bit better. And then last fall, everything came back in a much more severe way. I was having a lot of problems walking, um, just being a normal human. And I, and so that led me to see more doctors and I got this diagnosis in November of runner's dystonia or focal dystonia, like dystonia in one part of your body. And then I went to get a second opinion. I went to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and it was confirmed. So now it's just sort of learning how to live with this new diagnosis, which is confusing. I know most people probably are like, what the heck is runner's dystonia? But essentially it's, um, there is no cure for it. And it's, it's something that your body's done a lot of times. Like we've heard of musicians dystonia, like where their hands won't work. 
And essentially that's what happened. My left leg does not work the way it used to. Um, I really don't have control over it. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And so like the solution is medication, there's things to try, but essentially cutting way back on the running that I do, which for me is like devastating because I love running so much. Right. So it's been a crazy year, right? Because you, I fluctuate between feeling gratitude that it's not something more serious, but then also anger that this is happening to me. So I'm kind of like, I've been all over the place. <laughs> You know, yeah. With all of this. I mean, how yeah. could you not be all over the place? And it's hard to like find these moments of gratitude when you're sitting in it. Last week, you know, I was talking to someone about a very frustrating situation. She said to me, how can you reframe this to think, okay, this is happening for me, but still like sitting there and being like, yes, runner's dystonia is happening for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is funny to think of it that way because the last scary thing we thought I had when I couldn't walk was ALS. And obviously that's very, very serious. And that would, that takes people's lives and, and in a, a really difficult, horrible way. And so, you know, I'm trying to be grateful that it's not that I'm grateful to the running community that's shown me so much support. I'm grateful to people like Justine Galloway who have runners dystonia, who have just like opened up to me. So there is a lot of good that's come from it. I feel like positive forces in my life because of it. But at the end of the day, like I can't go for a run out my front door. And so I'm still sort of mourning that and like, you know, figuring out what this really means for me long-term. Yeah. And I mean, when you talked about it on Instagram, you shared, I'm not sure where running ends and I begin. We are so intertwined as one. I'm unsure what the future holds, but I'm trying to embrace it. Firstly, your words in that post where you shared what was going on with you were so poignant and beautiful and just like seriously piercing to the heart for you after sharing this openly, how did it feel to kind of come out with what you had been battling with for so long personally? Honestly, there was a lot of relief. I feel like I was like in the last year, I had two different worlds. One was like where I was trying out this new opportunity of doing commentating and working at track meets in this other world where I was like always afraid of what the next test was going to be or how my body was going to be. So I think finally telling like my very closest friends knew, but I, most of my friends didn't even know because I don't know what's wrong with me. So it's hard to describe, right? Like, especially like last summer, it's like, I don't even know what's wrong with me. So why would I let my friend worry about it when I don't even know what, like, I didn't even tell my aunt for so long or anything. So there's relief in it being out there feeling like, it's a weird diagnosis. And I think I had some shame and like, Oh, maybe I did this to myself somehow. Maybe I caused this, but I think putting it out there made me feel better. And like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to tell the truth. This is what's happening to me. And I know it's not my fault, but you know, you still have those thoughts. So yeah, you mentioned commentating. Did you have to do anything special or specific to take care of your health as you were doing all this travel and really picking up hours and things like that when you were commentating for the Olympics? You know, honestly, when I was commentating at the Olympics, I was on a really good stretch. I had gotten better over the summer. I thought I still couldn't, like, I still to this day can't run and turn a right-hand turn, like a 90-degree turn. And I feel uncomfortable running on the left side of the road. But other than that, I, like, when I first started running in the spring, my husband would run with me, friends would run with me that knew what was going on. But then I got to the point where I was like, I'm fine. I just can't make a hard right-hand turn. And I just have to run on the right side of the road. And so I was in a pretty good place when I was at the Olympics. In fact, I ran a couple times above the stadium. 
which is an extremely smooth surface, which now I couldn't do that at all. The only thing that happened in Tokyo was every day, every time I entered the stadium, so multiple times a day, I had to cross this giant metal plate. And I could not walk across that plate. Something about it gave me that feeling like I was going to fall. And so I would like either hold someone's hand or I'd like touch the side as I crossed it. And so that was really the only thing at that point, I felt like I've overcome this, whatever it is, I've overcome it, you know, just this weird time when I have to walk across a metal plate. Yeah. Wow. What a crazy scenario for you. And I'm sure something that's totally throwing you off your game when you're trying to be so on your game going on to international television. Talk to me a little bit more about that experience for you. I would imagine that as an Olympian yourself, this was definitely a full circle moment. It really was. You know, I went to two Olympic games and the first one I was, you know, a medal favorite and I finished ninth in the event that I was a medal favorite in. And then the second Olympics, you know, I believed I had an outside chance and I ended up finishing 10th. And so I was always sort of like, felt like I really let everybody down at the Olympics especially the first one, 08, I felt like I got really overwhelmed by the bigness of it and the attention of it and really got away from who I was as an athlete and what made me perform well. And so I just never really like talked about the Olympics and like people mean well, but the first thing they ask you um, when they find out you went to the Olympics was, did you win a medal? (laughs) It's like, no, 99% of us don't win a medal, you know? Um, And so I just always kind of felt like sad when I'd look back, I had like not, not positive memories with the Olympics. So I think going there in this different role, I just appreciated all of the athletes competing. And granted, I didn't get to watch like the Olympics because I was living at the stadium essentially, but I, I did not see one athlete who didn't try their hardest, who didn't have their heart on their sleeve. And for me, it was really healing kind of, because it made me think back at my time at the Olympics and think, well, I did do the best that I could on that day. I did leave everything out there. And so why am I impressed by this person, but I feel like I failed. For me, it was like a really, really great experience and um, was really special. And I felt really honored to be able to help tell people's stories while they were competing. Kara, I've just got to like throw this into the mix here. You're pretty hard on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. I I don't know. I've always been that way. Like, I just want to make everybody proud. It's a blessing and a curse. I think, I think it's a blessing because it makes me work really hard, but it's a curse because sometimes I can't appreciate my own self. You know what I mean? It's just always like, well, it could have been better. But part of that too, is just the elite athlete mindset. It's like, even if you win a medal, you're thinking like, well, now what could I do? You never really sit with the success you have. And then when you're past competing, like I am, I look back and I'm like, wow, I was pretty good. I wish I would have been nicer to myself throughout that 10 year span. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to hear you talk and reflect on like so many different experiences, but throughout all of it, you're like, well, what if I did this or with, what if I did that? Like talking about your current diagnosis. And then I think, you know, the other day when I was prepping for this, I watched an interview you did after the 2016 marathon trials. I feel like just saying that you're like, oh, I know exactly what interview this is, but I think it was for (laughs) let's run.com. And you're just so sad, understandably so, because you came in fourth in those trials and you said the sentence, they were just better than me. When you, when you reflect on that now, do you understand that statement not to be true? I mean, they were better than me (laughs) on that day, on that day they were. And I lost to three women that were worthy. It wasn't like 
someone pulled this race out that they were weren't capable of running. It's just it's a tough sport, right? It's I mean, only three go. So it doesn't matter how hard you run or how much like for me, I had pulled myself out of two years of injury and I was really written off at that point. And I had pulled myself back to be in a position to make that team. And yeah, I think it's taken me a long time to appreciate the race that I did have at those trials. I feel now like I did a really good job, but you know, yeah, that's always going to sting. That one is always going to sting. I hear that. I mean, not to mention talking about other moments where you really had just like this valiant comeback the year after having your son Colt coming back in such a big way to hit an all-time marathon PR. Talk to me a little bit about how maybe you surprised yourself in that moment. Oh my gosh. I was under so much stress. So I had my son in the end of September, 2010 and less than seven months away was the Boston marathon. And I was like, hell bent on doing that. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know what it would be like to have a newborn. I didn't know how long it would take my body to heal. So it's kind of interesting talking about that. Cause I'm always like, I really shouldn't have done that because I rushed so hard to get back. I pushed my body and it wasn't healed yet. And I feel like especially in America, we have this thing of like, oh, they got their body back in six weeks, or they were back doing this in 10 weeks. And I feel like in other countries, it's not like that. Like, you had a baby, and people acknowledge that, and they wait for you to be ready. So I definitely have mixed emotions about that race. But I was proud of how I ran. I was proud that, you know, I put my nose in it. And I think I ended up fifth, but I ran the best time of my life. So I, I mean, you can't really ask much more of yourself than that. It seems to me, obviously, such a beautiful event for your life, having your son, but it's like these really big earth shattering events in our lives, these hurdles, as you, as we call them, um, for an athlete, a hurdle of having a baby and coming back into the swing of things for you. So many of these really difficult personal moments over the last couple of years, they leave this profound impact on us and inspire us to emerge in a new or a different way than perhaps we were before this event happened. For you, something else to touch on here, a really big hurdle for you over the last couple of years, the loss of your grandfather to COVID. I know that he was the person that introduced you to running as a whole. Talk to us a little bit about how that was for you and your family back in 2020. Okay, I'll probably start crying, but it's okay. I'm here for you. I just love my grandpa so much. And um, you know, my dad died when I was four and we moved in with my grandparents before my mom bought a house. And my grandpa was just so supportive. Like he never treated us different than his grandsons. He believed we could do anything. He and I had a special bond because he was a lifelong runner and he got me into running. So he would tell everybody this story. And I'm sure everyone at his retirement community was just so bored of this story. But when I was six years old, he took me to this little fun festival and it was just a mile race and they started the race and I got pushed and fell. And he would tell the story that I stood up and my knees were bleeding and he thought, Oh great. I ruined running for her. And instead I was like, they're getting away from us. And he loved to tell that story to show, cause I was very, very shy. I still can be. Um, but he would love to tell that story that like, I was just this little shy girl, but I had a ton of like, competitive nature and I had things I wanted to do. So that was the first time I ever ran was that run with him. And he just was so supportive. And obviously my running is so tied to him. I think that's why one of some of this diagnosis has been difficult because that's when I feel closest to him. Mm. Um, But really the last 
you know, I was always traveling and doing things when I was an elite athlete. My grandpa would call and leave a message and say, don't worry about calling me back. I know how busy you are. And I think when I started to move beyond running professionally, I started to think like, what are the things that are most important to me right now? And that's seeing my grandpa and my grandma. Um, And so I put a lot of effort into going to Minnesota three or four times a year to spend time with them. And so that's what happened in 2020 is I was there for three weeks. My son had online learning. And so we went to Minnesota to spend time with my mom and my grandparents. And my grandpa contract got COVID right before we left. And uh, a week later, I flew back and I was with him as he passed. And it was just so hard. And we hadn't been able to see him only through a window um, for months, you know, once essentially once COVID started. So there was some anger that like we followed the rules and someone else brought it in. Mm. But then it was just so devastating. And around that time, you know, that's when it, I feel like COVID became politicized. And so there was a lot of people saying, well, he's so old, who cares this and that, you know? And so that whole thing was so hard. And even now, if I say something, some random person will jump in and say, let it go, or he was going to die anyway, or you know what I mean? Um, but I think I was grateful to be there with him when he died, but to watch him die so violently, mm-hmm. um, it was just so hard. I mean, I know people lose loved ones all the time, but it really, and I knew he wouldn't live forever. He was 95, you know, he wasn't going to live forever. But I think in the way that he was taken and how he had to suffer um, as he was going, it just, it really hurt. And he didn't deserve that. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, we're talking about that reframing from earlier in our conversation, right? And you talked about having this moment when you were falling back from running professionally that you had to ask yourself, what is important to me? And so if you, who knows, like what would have happened? Like if you went, you know, to the Olympics, like, and you didn't have this like kind of come to Jesus moment where you were like, what am I doing with my life? Like what's important to me? And you didn't spend all that extra time with him, how you would feel now, despite already carrying around this heavy sadness, right? About the circumstance that surrounded that difficult life event for you. So to be able to have that kind of perspective that you do have now is really, really special. Yeah, no, I'm so grateful for the choices I made. My husband was super supportive. Essentially from 2016 on, I was going multiple times a year, spending long weekends there. And, you know, of course you always want more time, but I, I am so glad that I realized that before it was too late and that I spent good quality time with him before it was too late. And so, I mean, really like life is short. And sometimes you get caught up in the day to the day or you get caught up in the grind, but like at the end of the day, what matters to you the most? And for me, it really is my family. And so I'm glad that I realized that and was able to have all those moments with him before he passed. Definitely. And you mentioned the loss of your father from a really young age. I know that he was killed by a drunk driver. You were originally from Queens and then moved out to Minnesota um, shortly. I mean, after that, talk to me a little bit about perhaps your relationship with your mother having, you know, only her. And then of course your grandparents, uh, you know, as you were coming of age and coming into sport. Yeah. My mom is like one tough cookie. Like, I think I've only seen her cry like maybe twice in my life. We're total opposites in that sense. We're like all cry at the Folgers commercial. And like, I seriously think I've only seen her like cry twice in my entire life. You know, she just was not the kind of mom. She was always there involved in everything, 
um, volunteering at everything, going on field trips at every single race, at every single soccer game. But she wasn't the kind of mom that made you, that allowed you to like dwell in self-pity. You know, like it was always like, there are people who have it worse than us. There, We have this, we always focusing on what we had versus what we didn't have. And so I'm really grateful for her for that because I feel like I am a glass half full person. I do think I got that from her. Um, she, like I said, we, we, I love her and we're super close, but we have different personalities. She's a lot more stoic. I'm a lot more, um, I don't know what the word would be vulnerable. I don't know. Uh, but she never let us take no for an answer either. And I mean, she is the reason why, like I fought my high school to, you know, have assemblies for all the sports that went to state, not just hockey and all these things. Like I would complain about it and then she'd be like, well, do something about it. So she really molded me into like, sometimes you have to take things into your own hands. You can't just complain about it. You have to work to the make, to be the change. And so I just love her. She's so, she's like little and tiny and my sisters and I are all giants compared to her. I'm the smallest. I'm five, eight. And then my other sister's five, 10 and my little sister's six feet. And she's like five, three. So she's just like this tiny little pocket rocket, but she is powerful and she gets stuff done. I would like to think that you're talking about her as being one of these never let us take no for an answer kind of women. And I would argue that you are certainly the same way, really standing up for yourself as you went through your evolution as a professional athlete. Talk to me a little bit about coming into your own in that way, right? In really taking pride in what you were capable of, but also then standing up for yourself as you made your way through the years. Yeah. I mean, I'm just non-confrontational by nature. I was always really shy. Like I couldn't even call someone on the phone and order a pizza. I'd have to have (laughs) my mom do it for me. Um, But I think as I got older and especially like once my son was born, There were things in my life that started to bother me. And, you know, my husband is the exact opposite of me. Like he is like confrontational. Let's just get it out in the open and get it done. Whereas I'm like, whoa, 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 let me think about it for like four months, you know? But I think I just started, I think having Colt and having to advocate for him started to sort of turn this tide in me to say like, there's nothing wrong with pushing for equality. There's nothing wrong with calling out things that are wrong. And in fact, if you have a voice that people will listen to and you don't use it, then you are kind of part of the problem and you're not part of the solution. It was not an overnight thing. I think it started with giving birth to Colt and not getting paid by my sponsor. Then it started there. That's kind of where it started to burn. And then as I experienced other things, you know, I just became more and more passionate about making sure that no other woman would go through what I had gone through. So it's been a long process. And still, sometimes I'm like, Oh, God, don't quote me on that. But um, (laughs) in general, it's good. You know, you said something on a podcast that I listened to, I believe it was a grounded podcast. And you said something that it's frustrating for you at times, because so many of the questions or specific events that people ask you about are events that you look back on and don't have the fondest memories of. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I certainly can relate to that as well, you know, to moments where from the outside looking in, when you don't know much about me, this looks super shiny and awesome. And someone says something like, you have been doing so great without knowing much more. So talk me through, you know, where some of those frustrations came from in your glory moments when you yourself, you weren't that happy. Yeah. I mean, just that race you asked me about Boston, 2011, you know, everyone was like, Oh my gosh, you did so well. But I was 
I was causing injury to myself. I felt like I had to do that. I wasn't being paid by my sponsor. And so behind the scenes, I was hating life. I felt like I was sacrificing time with my child to, to like prove to my sponsor that I was still a serious athlete. I think, you know, it's just, it's tough. Like even the, when I ran Boston the first time, you know, my team, that was a failure according like to everyone around me and my squad. And so when people would say, Oh, 2009, it was exciting. And I just like, I just remember crying and my coach telling me I messed up and, you know, so it's just, it's, it's tough. And that's, again, that's like what I don't want for the next generation. I want them to take pause, celebrate it. Could you maybe do better? Sure. Let's look to the future then. But like, you just did this amazing thing. I feel like a lot of the races that people remember that I did behind the scenes, my life was not very happy and things were not going that well. And I would lose, like, I love running so much. My grandpa instilled in me, he would always talk about the freedom of losing your mind through movement. And I love that. But I had years where I actually hated running. I was just doing it. It became a job and nothing was good enough for the people around me. And like, I actually didn't like running. And then I'd have to remind myself like, no, 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 I love this. I have to get it back to why I do it and why I love it. But there were definitely years where it was a tightrope walk. Yeah, let's, uh, it doesn't usually take me, you know, 26 minutes to get to this point, but I would love for us to circle back a little bit and talk about some of those beginning years because hearing that now in retrospect, I think it will actually help a lot of women maybe that are listening to this on their personal journeys who are in this tightrope walk moment on their path. So talk to us about, a little bit of those beginning years for you and running and what really inspired you to keep up with it and really lean into it professionally? Yeah. So for most of my childhood, like when I was younger, it was just something my grandpa and I would do and it wasn't serious. You know, maybe we'd run down to the Minuet and back from his house. It was just like a few miles or maybe we'd go do a little race like the Mother's Day run or something, but it was nothing serious. I just loved it. And I think I loved it because of him. It was like my alone time with him. Um, but then when I was older, I joined organized running in middle school and I'm so grateful for the experience I had. I ran for my middle school cross country in seventh grade. And then that winter that the high school coach asked me to come out for the high school track team. And there was a little group of us, seventh graders. We bring our running shoes to school and we walk down to the high school and we go to practice. And so I ran with the same girls for six years. I had the same coach for six years. And it was always so about fun, about having fun, about believing in each other. We won the state cross country championship the four years that I was in high school. And that's what my coach focused on. And, you know, yeah, I won some individual stuff, but even he could tell when I was getting nervous and he'd be like, Hey, all you need to do is do the best you can do so that we can still get this team title. And he just made everything fun. And the women, I mean, they're girls, but the women that I trained with, or they're women now, but the girls that I trained with, I'm still friends with them. We are like bonded forever. We were so invested in each other's success and in everybody meeting their own individual goals. And I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like I had the most lucky, charmed high school experience with running because it really showed me you could be good and you could train hard and still love it and still have fun. And so that's like the stuff that I go back to when I, when I would resent running, I'd think about my friends and how close we still are and how it bonded all of us. And I'm just really grateful for that experience. 
taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is an ultra personalized nutrition system that analyzes your blood and DNA biomarkers, 43 total to be exact, along with your lifestyle to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. Inside Tracker's patented system transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of science backed nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle recommendations. Now, of note, the brand was found. Founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard. Inside Tracker's mission is to transform the way every human eats, sleeps, and moves to live a longer, better life. Let me tell you, my experience with Inside Tracker has been absolutely phenomenal. I now feel more dialed in to exactly what my body needs to perform at its best than ever. I'm actually due myself for a new ultimate test. A SAP makes a mental note <laughs> to add this to my to-do list today. Now, of course, Inside Tracker has a deal for Hurdle listeners. If you head on over to insidetracker.com slash hurdle, that's I-N-S-I-D-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com slash hurdle, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store today. Again, that is insidetracker.com slash hurdle unlock your own big potential today. Also want to give some love to my friends at Element. That's L-M-N-T. Oh my goodness. Yesterday, I actually did something I've never done before, which was shake up my raspberry salt flavored Element after a 16 mile long run with my AG1. And you know what? I didn't have high expectations, but 10 out of 10 would recommend. I love Element because it is absolutely delicious. Plus, it gives me all of the good electrolytes I need with none of the junk that I don't. That's right. Element is a science-backed electrolyte drink mix that keeps it simple, giving you the perfect ratio of electrolytes while cutting out sugar, fillers, gluten, or other dodgy ingredients. I Yesterday, I shook up that raspberry flavor, but probably one of my go-tos, the watermelon salt flavor. They have different ones for every taste. Next to hanging out in my recovery boots, drinking Element is probably the number one thing I look forward to after any tough workout. The good news for you, Hurdle listeners, is that you can try a bunch of their flavors absolutely free with their Element sample pack. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drink, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com slash hurdle to get a free sample pack today. All you've got to do is pay $5 shipping. Again, that is drinkelement.com, drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get a free Element sample pack today. For those that didn't have that like team foundation in high school, maybe they just didn't consider themselves athletic or the time at the time or what have you that really laid again, that word foundation for you going forward, both in like your athleticism, but also in your credential for perhaps female friendships. Like what is yeah. special opportunity. I, a few years ago went to Nike cross nationals and I saw for the first time being someone who only briefly was involved in team sports in high school, I was exposed to just how beautiful 
it was to see these young women truly root for each other in a way that I had never seen. Like, yes, it's awesome and special and beautiful to, to go to marathons and cheer on the sidelines for your friends and run in marathons and all these things as an adult. But as an adult woman, to see these young women thriving in this atmosphere, it was unrivaled. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I usually was the first one from our team and we'd go through the shoot as quickly as possible to come around to cheer on the rest of our teammates. And even our teammates that were not on varsity, we just loved each other. I feel so lucky I had that because I don't think that everybody has that. And I do think sometimes there's this stereotype that like women can't work well together, but that that's the reason why I stayed with running was because of those girls. And we're still friends. You know, I went through puberty late in high school. Um, and I slowed way down. In fact, my little sister who was an eighth grader beat me and I would have quit if it hadn't been for those, those girls, I would have quit because I would have been like, this isn't fun anymore. I used to be super good. I'm not anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything is harder. I don't know this body. I'm embarrassed about this body, but they wouldn't, they would never in a million years, let me quit. You know, it was like this, this group of girls that we just had each other's backs. And so without them, I might have quit when I was a junior in high school. Yeah. And then foreshadowing a little bit here, but when you got to college, that kind of like late to the game puberty moment contributed to a little bit of body dysmorphia question mark when you became a college athlete. So talk to us a little bit about what that time was like for you really stepping into your womanhood while also trying to perform at that next level. Yeah. So I went to Colorado because they had a good team and I wasn't running that well, but I thought, you know what, I could probably make their varsity team and at least be a part of a team that's trying to do something special. And it just was really, I mean, I loved my college experience. I loved Mark Wetmore. I'm still, we still talk all the time. If I ever ran another race, he's the one I would have coach me, but it was, it was serious. It was very different than my experience at East high school where we would run to the grocery store and eat a donut hole and then run back, you know, it was very different. There were workouts, there was mileage, there was a point to everything. You had to earn your spot. So it was tough. And I would say, you know, I was still sort of adjusting to my body because I went through puberty so late. And then finally I did sort of adjust to it and I started to run really well, but then I felt all this pressure to look different. Um, and I think that the NCAA in general has a problem with, with female athletes and body issues and specifically in track and field and cross country, no doubt. And so I just sort of became weird about food, like, and a bunch of my teammates were weird about food. So then I could justify it like, Oh, well, this is how you have to do it when you get to this level. And, you know, I just, it got out of control. It did. And really, you know, it was my mom that was like, you're not running next fall unless you gain some weight. I was like, what, what do you mean? I'm an adult. I can do what I want, you know? And she was like, no, you're not, this is not healthy. Um, so I don't know. It's tough because I feel like it's a hard thing to avoid in um, collegiate running, but I feel like if people talked about it more and it could be open, like, like my sister, I was a fifth year. My sister was a freshman and we were all ordering salads and she ordered a burger. I just remember being so jealous of her. Like she can order a burger and she's not worried about what that's going to do to her. And I'm poking at this disgusting salad, you know? And then I was like, I want to be like that again. I don't want to be like this anymore. So I never judge disordered eating or eating disorders because I know I had my own issues and I know how hard they are to break. But I do think we need a shift because not everyone should have this story of, yes, I went through a part 
time where I wasn't feeling myself. Yeah. And I mean, you just did shed some light with that example. But aside from the weight loss that you experienced, what was like an example of you taking it too far? I mean, it's all I thought about. I remember I started dating my husband and I wouldn't eat all day because he would make he would make me eat. So I would eat like just little tiny snacks throughout the day. I probably run like 10 miles and I went to his house. And we were just dating and he was going to make dinner. And then I got there and he was like, oh, I haven't gotten to the grocery store yet. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to faint. I'm so hungry. You know, he was like, here, he opened a bag of Doritos and he was like, here, just have a few and then we'll go to the store. And I like, couldn't eat it. And he was like, eat it. Eat. This is going to make him sound so bad. But finally he goes, eat the fucking Dorito. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I had to eat this Dorito, which is so crazy because now. I would eat whatever Doritos while I was training. But at the time, food was bad. There was some, some food was good, but most food was bad. And I remember eating that Dorito and thinking like, oh my God, all my hard work is gone now because I ate a Dorito. And he was like beyond annoyed with me. Like, what the hell? Who am I dating? This girl's so weird. But that's how it was. It was very controlling. It's not that I wouldn't eat, but I was obsessed with like how much I ate, what food I ate. It was so, so opposite of who I am now. But I mean, I just think it's it's really hard to not fall into those traps when you're a young woman. The compare, I mean, even now it's even worse because that was before social media. So now you get to see everybody with their perfect bodies all over social media. You get to hear about it, you know? And so now it's even more intense and you're just at a vulnerable place in your life. You're away from home. You're learning who you are. And I think we have like an epidemic of this. I feel grateful that I got out of that, but it took a lot to get out of that. Talk to me about getting out of that. So, I mean, really, my mom was like, you have to gain some weight. So I just gained a few pounds, you know, um, and I remember one of my teammates saying, oh, you look so much better this season and feeling like, oh, like all I heard was, oh, now I'm fat, right? I mean, it's so crazy, but that's the way my mind was working. When I graduated from college, I just couldn't stay healthy. It was like I would train, my coach would say, oh my gosh, you're starting to get into great shape. And then I get another stress fracture. And even though at that point I had really shifted into treating my body better, I just think I had done damage. I had dug a hole. And so it really was like four years of injury and not being able to race and always being frustrated. And I just, I just didn't want to live like that anymore. You know, I mean, that was like the biggest emphasis. Like I would be counting calories, like as I'm eating, counting calories, even jotting it down. And I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. There has to be more to life than me constantly worrying about what the scale is going to say. There has, like, I'm not even happy any of the time. I'm always nervous about what I'm going to weigh tomorrow morning. It just was like, I can't, I can't live like this. It's just not worth it. So I think a supportive family, my, my um, then husband was super supportive. And I think it was like surrounding myself with people that were like, you got to get healthy. Like you're talented. It'll come back, but you have to get healthy and not, they weren't shaming me. I mean, minus the fucking Dorito comment. They weren't shaming me. It was like kindness. Like you can be who you used to be and be healthy. And so again, I feel lucky that I had the family that I have and the husband that I have because it would have been really easy to walk away from running at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a really easy segue for us to talk about the campaign that we are just both a part of for ultra sharing our experiences in our own unique runners bodies. And you're saying that this is a broad problem for female athletes in college. But I mean, this is a problem for women everywhere, right? You 
mentioned social media and how that can just rub in our faces, quote unquote, what perfection is based on whoever's definition. And it can just be so overwhelming. I am a size six, eight, depending on the day. And I go to the track and more often than not, I feel as a size six, eight, that I'm the biggest person at the track. That shouldn't be how that shouldn't be the first thing that I think about when I step onto the track period. I know, but that's so relatable. I mean, that was my entire elite career. I'm five, eight. I weighed, you know, 130. Most of the time I get down to the mid one twenties right before a big race. I was outweighing my competitors by 20 to 30 pounds. It's crazy. And so my mom would always say, I love it because I can always pick you out. You know, <laughs> like I was like, I don't look like that. And I, I know when some people hear this, they think, what the hell are you talking about? You are thin and I am thin, but it's always that comparison game. And I wasn't as thin as my competitors, even as an elite athlete, even though I was crazy thin, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's all in um, context. And yeah, like even after I'd made the choice that I was going to be healthy, it still would be an issue. I mean, I, I would have coaches be like, oh, you're from the Midwest. That's why you're so hardy. I mean, this is when I'm an elite athlete making Olympic teams. And these are not my coaches, just other coaches. And so it it's so hard to to remind yourself, like, I can't, I have to be strong. Like I will, I will lose all the things that make me a good runner if I lose that next five pounds. I will lose all my power. I'll lose all my strength. I won't be able to kick anymore. All the things that make me special, I'll lose if I lose five more pounds. But you're just inundated with like everyone's abs and everyone's arms and everyone's calves. And it's so hard. I really, really worry about the next generation because everything is so public. And not only is it public, which you see all these photos, but people can make comments. And comments are so triggering for us. Yeah. It's just, it's so tough. It is tough. And you know, it's so interesting you saying, you know, being one way and then dropping a little bit before the race. And I think that me as well, relating to that sentiment, thinking even as recently as going into the last New York marathon, like I ran New York last year and I didn't have the best day. And I thought about what I was doing in the weeks leading up to that race. And in the weeks leading up to that race, I was arguably under fueling. Like I was thinking about quote unquote, putting good things into my body. But in that process, I showed up and by mile eight of the marathon, I was completely depleted. And you get to these moments where I felt like you did in that interview after 2016 trials. It was like, in that moment, I didn't put my best foot forward because I wasn't prioritizing what I should have been prioritizing. I should have eaten all the, I mean, maybe not all the croissants, but I should have eaten the croissants and I should have done all these things. But I was so worried about a few pounds that didn't matter. Yeah. When I think about like this campaign and like what it is that we are coming together to say, it's just like celebrating the fact that literally if you have a body, you're a runner, but if you have a body that you have worth, period. Yes. It's so, I mean, there's a few people I follow on social who are so awesome with this. Like they are, they are, this is my body. I'm proud of my body. It is what it is. You know, I'm not going to change it for your standards. The truth of the matter is that any of us that get out there and move our body, we are in the community. We can relate to each other. And I think like, that's the thing with social media that's so dangerous because we're really just seeing 1% of our community on social media. And by the way, they're, 
chasing Olympic dreams. I get it, you know, but it makes a lot of the rest of us feel like, well, I don't look like that. And I can't run that fast or I can't run that far or, and it makes you feel like you're less worthy, which is like, so sad. Yeah. Like that you don't have worth because you can't run a marathon or you weigh over 200 pounds or whatever it is, instead of saying like, I look different, but I love running and we're all in this together, you know? Yeah. With everything that you are navigating now with your health, how do you maintain, or maybe you don't, and we can talk about that, but a level of grace and kindness with yourself because you can't move how you would like to? Yeah. I mean, over the last year I have put on weight, if we're being honest, and I, it, I don't love it. Like, here's the thing is I know that shaming my body and all this stuff is wrong, but it is so hard to get rid of those voices forever. Like, I don't think I'll ever fully get rid of those voices. You like I, human. Was, I mean, that's, I mean, right. that's my perspective, like to each their own, right? Like to each the, like uh, all the power to someone who truly believes genuinely in their soul that like, they are the second coming of like, who knows what, like, I'm so proud of you that you are in that place of body accept acceptance and gratitude, but body acceptance doesn't mean that you don't have days where you stand in front of the mirror and you're like, wow, my thighs look really stellar today. Like being sarcastic, like body acceptance is knowing that you can have that day, but you still have gratitude for what your body can do. Right. And you still give yourself permission to enjoy the dinner with your family. And I, yeah, I just think like, uh, it, it will, I, I do get frustrated because I feel like I'm 43 and I shouldn't be worrying about this stuff anymore, but it's just true. It's been ingrained in me that somehow my body has to look a certain way. So I have gained some weight over the last year, but the most important thing for me is I'm addicted to movement. So if I'm having a bad day and I can't run, I still have to do something. I'm not like, I'm not the kind of, I'll, I'll take a day off here and there. Of course, I'm not like totally insane, but I'm like, okay, I'm having a bad day. And now it's the second bad day. Like I have to do something. So I got really into the Kira Stokes fit app and I still use it, but I was doing all sorts of stuff. Like I would scroll through Instagram and like, like search. And then I would like save workouts that people were showing just because I need to move my body. And in some, like, in some ways I feel like I'm stronger in different ways. Like my upper body is definitely way stronger than it was a year ago. Um, but you know, it's, it's always like a battle. Like I want to run more because that's what I'm used to doing, but I can't. So now I have to do this other thing, but now I'm starting to, I'm starting to appreciate the other things that my body can do. Yeah. When you, that's so funny that you said the Kira Stokes app, Kira Stokes is a hurdler, been on the show and God, no wonder why your upper body is stronger now because that woman. <laughs> Seriously. The first time I did one of her workouts, I was like, everything hurt for like days, but it was glorious because it was like, wow, that was only 20 minutes. And obviously it did something to my body that has never been done before. So it was like <laughs> this weird high to be sore. Like that. a runner who's like used to being out there for like, you know, three hours at a time. And here you are yes. like working out in 20 minutes, 20 and, minutes and my arm is like giving out underneath me. <laughs> reclaiming all of this time for yourself. I mean, that's something else though, right? Like, I mean, we made this reference before about finding the silver lining of falling back from professional running and being able to spend more time with your family. Would you say that over, you know, the last 10 to 14 months of navigating this unforeseen health crisis, is that something else that you're finding a lot of gratitude in these days? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, we actually bought a little house in Minnesota, right by my mom in the same city that my sister lives in as well. And, you know, I, I, 
it's, you go through stages in life. I think my grandpa dying and then my grandma died last year. And I really think about life is short. You know, my dad, I'm older than my dad was. I've outlived my dad by nine years already. And I think about like how short life can be. And I think about what really matters. And so for me, when I think of happiness, I think of riding the tractor with my grandparents and jumping in the lake off the rock. And so then I'm like, I need to prioritize that. And I know that I'm in a fortunate situation financially where I can do that. But I do think we can all do that to a certain extent. It's like, I'm still going to work hard. I'm still going to get my jobs done. I'm still going to deliver on what I need to deliver on. But I also give me myself permission to enjoy the small things that really make me happy. And so I've spent so much more time with my family over the last year, last two years, really. And it makes me so happy. It makes me feel fulfilled. And it makes me feel like I'm spending time doing something that is making my heart full. And I've like just started to shift to that's the most important thing. It's like being present, being happy, experiencing happiness, you know, like the memories of all of that is what carries me. It's not stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like the memories and the experiences. To pivot back to where we were for just a second, um, when we were talking about our discussion about navigating what is your quote unquote new body over the last couple of years, for you, when that conversation does shift a little bit negative or does skew a little bit negative, where do your thoughts go to kind of bring it back full circle and kind of reel yourself in? Yeah. Like, I mean, I had a meltdown the other day because. I, I, my son was willing to run with me and I couldn't do it. I was having a bad day. And then I'm like spiraling and I'm like, this is going to ruin my life. And, you know, but then I just have to take a deep breath and say, Hey, I haven't lost everything. The things that really matter to me are here. I have a great team of people who are helping me. They're going to help me get back to as much as I can. And you know, what's more important, like running two miles with Colt or just like really being there for him in life all the time. And so I'm always trying to like, I'm always trying to be grateful and not to the point where it's like annoying. Like I'm like, yay. And like, I have this cool house or I have a great car. Or I have new running shoes. You know, it's not, not like that, but like the big things, Hey, I have a loving supportive husband who I have had. I've been married to him for 20 years and I am so proud of our marriage. I have a son who works so hard and has taught me so many things. I have, you know what I mean? Just like, focusing on the things that really, really matter in life. Yeah. And I I even do think that some of those like little things like having new running shoes. I mean, every morning when I journal at the end of the page and I just like try to stick it out for one page every morning, even when I'm like, what's going on in the world? But at the end of the page, I'll write one highlight, one gratitude from the last 24 hours. And sometimes it can be something as simple as like, I got some really great new trail shoes yesterday. Like I got the, like not sponsored. I got the ultra Mont Blancs and I'm like obsessed with them. I've been running, I've been going to prospect park and like running on the dirt trails because I'm like, Oh, these are a great pair of new sneakers. But those little gratitudes, they can really add up to something very big. They do add up. I think it's easy to say, I can't run the way I want. I'm losing what I want. I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to do that 50 miler I wanted to do. Spiral, spiral, spiral. There's there's war going on. You know, it's easy to like spiral out of control. And so, and it's okay. The other thing is it's okay to have a bad day. Like it's okay to be sad. Like my mom did teach me that. Like when I wouldn't, like I'd try so hard to win something, I wouldn't win it. And she'd be like, be sad for a day, cry it out, do what you need to do. And then tomorrow wake up and set like a new goal. So I don't think that it's like, 
you can't have a bad day, but it's taking a step back and saying like, okay, I'm having a bad day. But just like you said, I mean, I love some new fresh kicks. Don't get me wrong. I'm like open smell them. I get so very excited. Um, Yeah. The smell is so like, I will be in my nineties sniffing shoes out of a box, but it's like, it's okay. It's, it's just trying to focus back on positive. And I think that's as an elite athlete, how it was, you know, I'd be racing and I'd start to get overwhelmed and I'd be like, I'm tired. They look better than me. And then I'd always try to focus on one thing that was telling me like, Carrie, you're doing this right. Like your breathing is still controlled. You're still in this. And so it, that applies to life, you know, like always finding the positive and it's around you. It really is. Even if it's just some new shoes. Even if it's just some new shoes, you know, we have touched on a lot of like difficult moments over our chat here, but I would love to, as we reflect on positives and gratitude, circle back and perhaps if you could share maybe what have been some of the most joyous moments for you in your career. That's a great question. I think my family all came out to the 2016 Olympic trials. And even though it didn't go how we had hoped, it meant so much to me that everyone came and even my high school teammates came, even though the race didn't go how I had dreamed, I felt so much support. So I actually look back at the 2016 trials as like, it's always going to hurt, but it also reminds me of like that people love me no matter what, you know what I mean? When I made the Olympic team in 2012, my tune up race was in my hometown of Duluth, Minnesota. And that's probably the best, most fun I've ever had in a race. You know, I mean, it was like crazy. Like people were yelling things like we were in biology together and your son and I, you know, your son or my son was with you in math or whatever, but it was just so fun. And like my grandparents were at the finish line, my high school coaches at the finish line. And it just felt like, yeah, I had moved away and I had traveled around the world. But at the end of the day, like I just was so happy to be home there. Yeah. So I think that's probably my favorite race memory that I, that I have. And Colt was born then. So even he was like wearing his little UMD bulldog, you know, hockey jersey and it just felt so great to to run and perform well in front of people who have had my back since I was 12. I mean, it goes back to what your high school coach was saying and something that at times totally got lost along the way because of getting caught up in all of the craziness that goes hand in hand with being at this elite level. It was about having fun. And when you found the fun again, you were able to perform even better. Yeah. And you know, like when I look back at my career, I think when was I as an elite athlete, I think when was I the happiest and I was the happiest training for the 2016 Olympic trials. That is the happiest time of my life as an elite athlete. Why? Mark Wetmore and Heather Burroughs, the coaches at CU brought me in. They believed in me. My family believed in me. I was, I didn't have any performance clauses and contracts anymore. I didn't have any race, you know, requirements. I was doing it for me. I was 37 and I was getting to do it because I loved it. And so many people invested in it with me and said, you know, we're going to take this ride with you. Like I could start crying when I think about Mark and Heather, my coaches and how much, I mean, they would shovel the track for me. They know I hate running on ice. I would warm up and meet them somewhere. And Mark would be like, oh, there's a little ice over there. We'll come back and meet you in two hours. Go home and take a quick nap. Like they were just so invested. And I felt like I was doing it for all of the right reasons. I felt like I had found my way back to why I was doing it. And like I said, even though it didn't end the way I wanted, that's like, when I look back, that's 
the happiest I ever was training. You never forget. And I mean, it sounds cliche, but you never forget how people make you feel. And if you feel or felt during that time supported and valued and important and like part of a team, like that's something that no one will ever be able to take away from you, whether or not you went to the Olympics or not. Yeah. I'm so, I like really look back at that and I, I usually get emotional, but I think I already cried about puppets. So it was such a happy time. And even after the race, you know, I finished fourth and I didn't make it. And I was like, I'm so sorry to them. And they were like, no, we're sorry. We are sorry. We know how hard you worked and maybe we dropped the ball. And it was just such a different experience than I had ever had as an elite athlete, where I really felt like we were all truly a team. Yeah. And they were going to take ownership in the mistakes that we made or didn't make, you know, like it just felt like, I don't know. I was just so happy during that time. I was so fulfilled during that time. What are you excited about right now? Oh, geez. Going to Hawaii. Yes. Um, <laughs> going to Hawaii. I think my work with Wazelle, I like shifted from athlete to a more advisory role and you know, looking at athletes right now and and who might fit in with us and then other projects we could be doing. So I'm super excited about Wazelle because I feel like my opinion really matters there. I feel like I'm taken seriously there. I'm really excited about my relationship with Ultra and all the things that they're doing. I feel like they're really growing as far as like knowing who they are and expanding to the roads, which is exciting to me because obviously I love the roads. Um, and I'm like, I'm hoping that I get to work for NBC again this summer. So we'll see, but I'm excited about more, um, opportunities to work in the comment, like being a commentator. And I'm super excited about Boston <laughs> because I, I got that job and the men's race is going to be amazing. This is not just like the men's, but the women's race is insane. I mean, literally every good American marathon, female marathoner will be there except for the American record holder, which I know is a big loss, but like everybody else will be there. And I'm super excited to see when we don't avoid racing each other, what will happen. Yeah, what the I hell, think Kira? Like, Why are you like throwing off the game I know. like this? I mean, she's, you know, she's allowed to like recover and build back up. I mean, she did run 219. So I guess we'll let her go. <laughs> Kira's my new, Kira was on the show recently and she was the one who said this, that we are now BFFs for life. And we have a, a pending cookie eating tour of New York, which you are more than welcome to come join us oh, on. So but bad. I will send her this clip. And Kira, you need to know that Kara and I are going to miss you in Boston. Oh, she will be missed for sure. <laughs> um, I keep thinking like, oh, maybe she'll come in last minute. But I think that she's probably being smart and recovering from an amazing effort and thinking about what's next. I'm super excited about that race. I just feel like it's going to be super exciting. And I feel like in 20. 18 when Des won. Um, was that 2018 or 2017? It was 2018. 2018. That year we had a ton of good American women. Like when I was racing, we didn't really race each other. Like I'll go to London, you go to Boston, I'll go to New York, you go to Chicago. It was just like, we didn't really meet head to head. And in 2018, that was an incredibly deep American field and Des won. And so I feel like I feel like it could happen again. I think it's going to happen again. Poor Des. I don't want Des to lose out on her her big clout and glory moment from that year. Yeah, I know. But you know what? That will always be the most epic Boston win ever. It's so I mean, true. the fact that she, like the conditions, the fact that she had resigned herself to help others, and then she was like, wait, I feel 
better than everybody else. I mean, it was like so epic. Like I could not believe it was happening. I was like screaming at the TV, crying. Um, and that can never be taken away from her. Never. Absolutely never. Well, I'm excited for our um, not yet confirmed, but 100% happening Boston Marathon Cheer Station, which you and I will both be. <laughs> you and I will both be at. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be great. Perfect. Okay. So um, winding down right now, if I was to go to your Instagram page, Kara Goucher, I see a runner, a two-time Olympian, someone with almost like 200,000 people following her. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh, that is a really, really good question. I, you know, I'm just like this. I, sometimes I feel like I'm just this small town girl from Duluth, Minnesota. And like, at some point someone's going to realize like, I'm not that cool. And I don't know everything. And like, I do sometimes feel that like, I'm just, a small town girl. When, I don't know. When I look in the mirror, first of all, I see my mom because I'm aging and it's crazy how much I look like her now, but I just see someone who cares a lot. I mean, I think like if there's a legacy to be left, what I would want people to remember me by is that I cared and that I tried to protect other people and I tried to fight for what was right. That's super important to me. And I, and, um, and that I'm a mother and a wife, that's really important to me too. But just that I, I will, you come to me and I will help you. I will fight for you. I will be there for you. That's who I want to be. And that's what most of the time I see. But sometimes I just see like a really tired 43 year old woman in the mirror. And I'm like, how did I get here? I used to be 20. <laughs> I mean, obviously over the course of the last hour, there were so many things we could have gotten into that we didn't. Um, one thing I do want to just touch on very quickly is your work with the Clean Sport Collective. And you just started a new season of the podcast in podcasting, what would you say has probably been one of your greatest gifts by diving into that for yourself? Oh, well, I think I'm really shy. So asking people to come on, like I was like, when we had Allison Felix on, I was like shaking. Like I was like, I just want to do her justice. Um, but I think it's been good for me, like to talk to other people, to get other perspectives, to learn their personalities and it's been really fun. I was definitely nervous for the first season that we did, but now it's become more natural. And I think it's helped me for like my work with NBC for sure to be able to just talk off the cuff. But, and I think this is how you are too. I do research a lot before because I don't want to like bring someone on and say something disrespectful or be like, Oh, do you have any races coming up? And they're like, yeah, I'm racing tomorrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't want to be, <laughs> like, don't you know that I'd, about like, me? Yeah. It's like, geez. And I mean, I have been on podcasts where people will ask me stuff and I'm like, like a simple Google search, you'd know the answer to that, you know? So I do. And Chris is really good at that too. just like researching and getting ready and prepping, but I don't know, it's been really fun. And, you know, we did take a break because of my health issues. So I just appreciate everyone sticking around and re-listening. And, you know, we're hoping to be more regular now that now that I'm like settled in what's going on with me. I can put more time towards this. I love promoting clean athletes. I love giving people a voice. That's something I didn't necessarily feel like I had when I was competing. And so I love being able to give them a voice. And it's really fun. It's really rewarding. How can people listening uh, to this right now support you as you continue on in your journey, uh, especially as you kind of like step into your own and like, re-examine a little bit of your identity, I would say. 
Yeah. I think just, I feel like the running community is so supportive. Like even the first time I did commentating, I totally messed up. I spoke on a hot mic and people were like so nice and excited about it. So I think just the empathy that we have for each other, just continuing that, you know, we know you never know what someone's going through. And so, and even with elite athletes, if they're struggling, like we don't really know everything about them. So always having grace with others, always leading with empathy, never just assuming anything about anyone. And I feel like I've gotten a lot of that from this community, but I, that's what I would love to just see continue. You know, like we can celebrate the highs, but sometimes you're on a low and people don't necessarily know. So just treat people with grace because you just don't know what other people are going through. I love those sentiments. I love them. Okay. Final question, Kara Goucher. Right now, you have the opportunity to give yourself a piece of advice. Let's say looking back at 2016, I think that you were like really hopeful to like kind of cherry on the Sunday for your career in that moment. And it was a really hard moment for you to pick yourself up from. So what advice looking back on that moment do you offer yourself now? You know, I would just say, because I know what happened, I spiraled into depression for a while. And I think I would just say, you know, did you do everything you could? You did. And your son got to see his mom do everything she could for her dream. And a third Olympic team wouldn't have made you more valuable as a human. Your value stayed the same. And so although it hurts, and I know it hurts, it doesn't change anything about who you are and what you have to offer. I think I would tell her that. She'd probably tell me that's not true, but anyway, that's what I would tell myself. <laughs> it's good advice. It's good advice. You have value as you are always. Kara, I'm so excited that we were able to make this happen. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you? Give us all your details. Okay. So I used to be a lot more on Twitter, but then I feel like Twitter's become a cesspool. So I'm on there. It's at Kara Goucher, but I don't post that often. I post a lot on Instagram. That's probably my favorite. It is a mix of like business and running and, you know, my animals and my child. So it's kind of all over the place, but I feel like it's probably the most authentic me. And then, you know, hopefully I'll be out at races and I'll be able to see people and, you know, we're, we're moving forward from this pandemic and we're getting more one-on-one interaction. And I look forward to all that. And I look forward to just seeing people out in the, out in the wild, out in the wild. Well, I will be in the background of all of your live shots at Boston. <laughs> I can't wait for the Perfect. wild. <laughs> I'm over at Emily Abadi and at hurdle podcast, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.